than another. And the Spirit is here and we're gathered in his name and we trust that you'll take the truth of your word and open the eyes of our heart to that reality and help us, Lord, to know you more fully, uh, to be more faithful in following after you. Uh, Lord, help us in our time this morning so that we're a little bit closer to you at the end of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata has been pretty well known in Christian circles for decades. She was an energetic, uh, very athletic, also 17-year-old. And on July 30th, 1967, she dove into water that was much shallower than she realized and broke her neck. And she's been a quadriplegic ever since, so 50-plus years on that. If you know anything about her, what she has accomplished in her lifetime would be astounding for anyone, whether they're in a wheelchair or up and able the way most of us are. She's put records out. She's done uh, artwork with her mouth, brushed with her mouth, sold paintings. She's spoken in this country and around the world for a long, long time. She's supported uh, numerous causes. She's done a whole lot with her life, so it's certainly not like that's kept her back. But she was at a conference, and she was speaking to someone, and they were talking about looking forward, the expectation of heaven. And in the course of the conversation, the person stated that they understood that one of her key reasons for longing for heaven was to be out of her wheelchair. And she said, well, no, that's actually not the reason why. She said, besides seeing Christ face to face first, she said, what I'm really looking forward to is being free from my own sin. But that was the deal. It had nothing to do with the wheelchair. You know, with outward eyes, someone was looking at the challenge of the wheelchair, but she was looking at her life at a greater challenge, which was just abiding sin, the sin that remains in us as long as we're in these earthly bodies. Not her physical infirmity, but the greater infirmity of sin. It's easy, if you think about the Christian life and what that looks like, we can have all kinds of concepts and ideas and what that looks like and what it doesn't look like. But if we remember from Romans 8 that God's great work, friends, is almost never through us, it's in us, and that God's great work in your life and mine is making us like Christ. That's Romans 8, that the predestining work of God is to make more people in his family in heaven and in eternity that are like Christ. So he sort of takes the raw material that is us as we came, but he imparts to us Christ's nature and characteristic so that it's us at a level that we could never have been otherwise. It's us as God intends. So the great work in us is the transforming work of the Spirit making us like Christ. And part of what happens with that is the more of Christ we know, we possess by experience, the more transformed into his image we are, we find that we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. And God loves us and God hates sin. And Johnny Erickson taught us perspective was a godly one because the more you are transformed into Christ's image, the more you hate sin and the desire to be away from our Sin, indwelling sin, becomes a big deal. That's where we're going to be going this morning. We're in the last two, excuse me, we're in the last verses of Second Peter 3 in the Be Diligent series this morning. 
and we'll be talking, uh, we're laying down, excuse me, <clears throat> we'll be talking about transformation into Christ's image. That's the main message that we'll close with. We'll talk about a couple other points before that. But you remember, Peter's talked about mockers and false teachers and, and people that are saying, you know, really no hope of a second coming or future judgment. Peter's spoken to correct all that. Where he's going to wind down this morning is on that Christ-like transformation that we're all called to. If you've got your Bible, 2 Peter 3, verses 11 through 18. I'm going to read from the ESV. And if you use a pew Bible here this morning, that's page 1019. He had just affirmed that when Jesus came at the second coming, he would come in judgment. And then also at the consummation of this earth age, this earth, in fact, we'll read a verse about that again here this morning, would be consumed, it would be transformed into a new heaven, a new earth. So that's where we're picking up at verse 11. So he says, Peter writing, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the earth as we know it, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, <clears throat> excuse me, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent, that's one of the phrases from which the series title comes, be diligent, work at, be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Before we get to that main point, we'll cover two others. And the first is this, waiting, waiting. Peter says this earth, the, the heavens and the earth that you and I have grown up with, that we have known, they're headed for future destruction. With that, though, he says there's this anticipation of the new heaven and the new earth and our life with Christ. So if you look at verse 10, the heavens will pass away, burned up and dissolved. We talked about that last week. Verse 12, the heavens from this week's text will be set on fire and dissolved. Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The world you and I have called home, it's headed to an end. It's not going to go forward. It's going to come to a point when it ends. So the implications, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the day of God, the day of God like the day of the Lord, when God would bring judgment. And remember, always with the viewpoint, the forward look, that the judgment is coming to clear the slate and begin a new heaven and a new earth in which Peter says, righteousness dwells, it'll be a putting away of all that's deficient so that Christ brings in everything that's positive as it should be. So waiting for hastening the day of God, verse 13, waiting for new heavens and new earth, verse 14, beloved, we are waiting for these, again, new heaven and new earth, and then verse 18, we are heading to the day of eternity. So he's got this concept, because we know earth as it exists, life as we've known it will end 
we need to be conscientiously looking forward to the place that we're going. In fact, if you remember, I don't remember if it was last summer or two summers ago, we had a quick jaunt through 1 Peter, one of the key verses in that letter. 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, it was that thought that I'm looking forward. My life is characterized now by a forward look related to Christ coming back to the earth. So one of Peter's key thoughts in both epistles is that looking for Jesus' return, that I'm tying my, my time in the moment now with an expectation in the future. It hasn't happened, but you can count on it. Uh, scripture talks in the language, if you think of Song of Songs, there's this uh, not only relationship Solomon has, real king with a real woman, but that paradigm that God is taking a people for himself. So the thought of a bride waiting for the bridal day for the bridegroom to say, hey, everything's ready, you know, come. You see that throughout Scripture. Ephesians 5 talks about the, the church of Christ as being the bride of Christ. There's that thought of expectation. So for the bride, there might be lots of activity in her life. There's lots usually to do. We're having a wedding, seeing all that. So she's living with that forward look, that expectation. I've got things to do now, but I'm doing all that with that view of my wedding day. And that's the same thought here, that because we know this world is transient, it doesn't last, and we're made for something better and something lasting, we should be looking forward to that day and that time. It's not only when Christ takes his bride, but it's really the consummation when God sets in order all things as they should be. Everything will be everything it should be, no deficiency whatsoever. The false teachers and the mockers that we've read of in chapters 2 and 3, they spoke, <coughs> excuse me, they believed and they lived like there is no future judgment and life on the earth as it is, is all there is. It's really, if you remember 1 Corinthians 15 I think it's verse 32, when Paul was talking about the, the reality of the resurrection in the face of people saying there is no resurrection, you remember one of his conclusions, if there's no resurrection, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. This is all there is. And so the people that Peter had pointed out and said, hey, be aware of these guys are coming, these false teachers, that is their viewpoint. They live and they mock the concept of Christ's coming and of judgment at his coming and future judgment. They mock those concepts. <clears throat> Excuse me, but Peter's reiterating, we've got an eternity to look forward to. Those days really are coming. This thing ends as it is, and we need to be preparing and gearing up, looking forward to that day when we see Christ face to face. Uh, Psalm 1611 is... Uh, a phrase that I've loved. If you're a Christian and you have a really hard life, if you live 70 or 80 years and, and it's hard all the way, you might say, man, life has been really hard, but you have something to look forward to and it's absolutely dependable and you can count on it. David, this was a messianic psalm. He was talking about the fact that God's Messiah would not undergo decay even in death. But in the context of that, he says, you make known to me the path of life, so real life, abundant life is being made known to me by God, 
in your presence, so this is Yahweh, in Yahweh's presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Christians can afford to delay or have done with all kinds of pleasures because we know that where we're going there are pleasures and there is joy forever. You know, if you took a cup and you fill it full of wine and it overflows, that's a picture of your future. There's joy forever and it never runs dry, it never diminishes. So whatever, whatever living in light of eternity requires of us here and now, it'll be a small thing compared to the pleasures, the joys that we have forever in Christ's presence to come. We can afford to live sacrificially, humbly, carefully with that forward look because we know the best is yet to come. Uh, Christians living in poverty today, and let me say quickly, there are lots of Christians living in poverty today. There are lots of Christians today, you know, we pray week by week for persecuted Christians. There are lots of Christians today, and especially thinking of Africa, parts of China, North Korea, especially uh, inadequate housing or no housing, inadequate food or no food, persecution, emotional, physical, you name it. And God loves them as much as he loves us. He loves us no more even though they're suffering in ways you and I aren't. And I believe God will give them a reward for faithfulness in that that I won't get. I've had a pretty cushy life, and I don't think God's rewarding me for the cushy portions of my life, though I'll be quick to say, I enjoy my cushy life. I like the comforts. I like the food. I like air conditioning and heating and all those good things. I'm, I'm thankful every day for God's common grace. That's no small thing. But for those that live in poverty today, they know, or God willing they know, they have a future glory and wealth that will make their poverty insignificant by comparison. We could put ourselves in their shoes in this sense, like a dieter feeling hunger pains knowing Thanksgiving supper is coming. So my stomach's empty, I feel the pang, but I tell myself, oh, and the Thanksgiving banquet is coming. That pang, that loss, whatever that deficit is in material wealth reminds me I'm headed to this joyous, pleasurable future that will never end, that I can, I can make do, I can overcome, I can live through the challenges now, whatever that poverty looks like, wheelchair, financial poverty, emotional poverty, whatever that looks like, persecution, because of what's to come. Friends, the wealthiest of Christians here and now should know that by heaven's standards, their current wealth is insignificant, like trinkets in a Cracker Jack box. You know, isn't it telling, uh, you guys buy any gold, by the way? You know, the hedge against inflation? I did, I bought some. And you'd be amazed how little I bought. It's highly valuable, right? Gold is highly valuable. And uh, what do you do with gold in heaven? You walk on it. You, you pave streets with gold. It's like if I came to you and said, man, I've got these reserves of asphalt at home, and I'm looking, you know, when the dollar falls, I'm good to go. Like, you know, heaven's perspective of wealth, it's quite a bit different than ours. And again, that's not to naysay or belittle God's gifts and material wealth here. That's a good thing. And by the way, when God gives us wealth, one of the things he expects us to it is to spread it around, isn't it? To be generous with those who have less. You see this in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one member of the body suffers, they all suffer. And he talks about by way of equality, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that we want to share with those who have less than we do. That's still a good call and a good thing. 
But in either instance, whatever our experience in life is, good or bad, rich or poor, suffering persecution or free to do all the things we want, Peter says we're supposed to have this view of the temporary nature of this life we're in so fully that we're, our eyes aren't fixed right here, they're fixed above, and then we're orienting everything else in the now by, based on where we're going, the end of this earth, the beginning of the new heavens and new earth in Christ's presence. So does waiting for Christ's appearing in our presence with him, does that describe our life and our outlook? Does that describe us? Let's just let that question settle there for just a second. Does that describe my life and my outlook? Now, probably for many of us, it doesn't. And so without piling on any guilt, most of us who, who say, you know, I really don't think that way, the thought probably is I'm really busy. I'm, moms, there's diapers to change, aren't there? And there's little kids to get up in the night and I miss my sleep. And, and some days I'm just holding it together just to get done in the moment what needs to get done. And sometimes life is like that and I get that. And so I don't say any of this in the sense of piling on guilt. But even in that, we still want to remember these days they're measured, guys, and they'll end. You know, and even if what you're doing in the moment is really, really hard, we still need to tell ourselves it's temporary. In fact, Paul says, I think it's 2 Corinthians, uh, temporary, momentary, temporary, momentary light afflictions. You know, whatever we go through in life, it's, it's temporary. And compared to the eternal weight of glory, it's, it's a little thing. So even in all the challenges of life, we still want to remember we've got this upward call, and that should direct us, should direct our motives and our thought on what's going on in the moment even if we're a mom getting up at night, changing diapers or putting a little one back to bed. That's sort of the epitome of the challenging life for me, if you can't tell, mom getting up with Junior. Uh, shifting gears, so we've got this upward look. We know the world's ending as it is. We know we've got a better place and a better time in Christ's presence, so we're living life in view of that. He brings in this, it's a little strange. He brings in a segue to the apostle Paul so if you look at verse 15 and then 16, he brings in the Apostle Paul. And I think what he's doing, what Peter intends to do is, you remember he has said in the opening of this letter, he's an apostle. So that means he speaks with Jesus' authority. But he also knows these guys are hearing from a bunch of other people, and people down through the ages would too, that are mocking the notion of the truth he's espousing. So he's an apostle, and he's told them, and he says, believe me, but if you remember back at the end of chapter 1, he was citing the Old Testament prophets, Jesus, and the New Testament apostles. And he's doing that same thing here because he wants to make a point, and he wants to make it clearly. In spite of all these other voices that you're hearing, what I'm telling you is absolutely true, and you can count on it. Not only do I speak with the authority of Christ, but I'm marshalling in someone else that also speaks with the authority of Christ, someone they'd heard or read, and that's the Apostle Paul. So at verse 15, Peter wrote, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That We looked at that concept last time. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. As Christ doesn't come back, people are being saved. That's what God's up to. 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these manners. So Peter knows that this group he's writing, his friends, his beloved friends, he knows they've also read Paul. Now, this is just shortly before Peter is executed, so it's around 65 AD. So based on Peter bringing Paul into this argument, he's probably referring to Romans around 57 AD. So you guys know in the New Testament period, Peter or Paul wrote a letter to a church. That church got one letter, but typically what any local church would do was they would write that letter out. They would make copies. Those copies would get sent to other churches. They were circular. They would be circulated among the churches. In fact, as far as the canon in the New Testament goes, one of the ways that those books were determined to be canonical or not was not only if they were written by an apostle, but various churches had their own cachet of this, this buildup of letters that had circulated. So Peter knows they've heard Paul. Whether he ever came through physically their region or not, Peter knew that they had heard or read Paul's writings. So in Romans 2, when Paul was developing the theology that everyone is lost in sin, he said in chapter 1, Gentiles are lost in sin. And in chapter 2, he made sure the Jews knew they were too. In that context, he says, this is Paul, Romans 2 verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Remember, Peter's point was God's being patient. His patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So Peter says, you know, to the mockers that say he hasn't come, and he's had plenty of time, Peter's response was, well, he's patient because God's still saving. And Paul says, well, God's kindness, he's patient because he's giving you repentance or salvation. It's the same thought by another apostle. So Peter's making sure he's not, a, uh, Peter's making sure they know he's not a lone voice. This is what others with the authority of Christ are teaching and saying as well. Verse 16 he says, there are some things in them, so in Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So someone might say, well, I've read Paul, and I don't, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Someone's read him, and they're twisting what he says, or they're invalidating Paul's writings, and Peter's depending on Paul sort of as, as the enforcement of the theology he's presenting to them. So Peter's making two points. Peter says some of what Paul writes is difficult to understand. He acknowledges that. You know, Bill Bider took us through a multi-week series on eschatology not long ago, and if you didn't learn anything else, you learned that there's a lot of opinions about what these various texts mean, that if you try and plot the future, there's a, there's a great variety of opinions as to what that looks like. And you say, well, why is that? If there's only one real, real reality, if there's only one truth about what that looks like, uh, why, are there, why is there such a diversity of opinion? And you say, well, frankly, because the texts aren't as clear as we would like them to be. So if you read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians to get your chronology on eschatology, on future things, you'll probably be disappointed. So if, if I say I'm a pre-trib rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 
and I say, man, I'm good on this. And I read 1 Thessalonians 5, it all lines up, I'm good, my chronology works. And I get to 2 Thessalonians 1, is this the rapture? This sounds like the second coming. And how does this work? And what's Paul saying? And what is he not saying? So Peter acknowledges, depending on what they'd read or heard from Paul, they might say, well, Paul's not as clear as we'd like him to be on one hand. And Peter acknowledges that. So hold that lightly. Basically, he says, people are taking Paul's letters and they may be distorting them, but he's still an apostle. He still speaks with Christ's authority. And he's saying the same thing I am about God's patience, Christ's coming, and our future. The other thing he says is Paul's letters are scripture. You know, in the ESV, we say, as the rest of the scriptures. In the Greek, it's graphe or graphe. And that's the same term the Jews use for God's word. This wasn't, uh, if he said the rest of the writings, Peter as a Jew is saying the rest of God's word. He is saying Paul's writings are scripture, just like the Old Testament. So this is one of the bold declarations in the New Testament. There's, there's only a handful in which New Testament texts affirm that New Testament writings are God-inspired, God-breathed, of equal value as the Old Testament writings that the Jews already had in hand. So Peter points out that not only is he speaking as Jesus' spokesman, but another apostle is saying the same thing. So he's still saying, count on it. Yes, it'll be a while before Christ returns, but count on it coming. You have my word as Christ's authoritative spokesman, and here's another authoritative spokesman as well. Guys, the balance of our time I want to spend on this notion of transformation into Christ's image. And if you're here for Sunday school, some of this will be repeat. Because this earth ends, because our future is in a righteous heaven and earth, Peter says our lives should be characterized now by living without spot or blemish, uh, godly lives, Christ-like lives. And look at the way he marshals this point. Verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. So holiness is hagios when, when letters are written in the New Testament to the holy ones. It's that same phrase that if you're in Christ, you're holy because Christ is holy. That second word, uh, godliness, we might say piety, or we, it would be something like someone who has religion, but in, in the best and the highest sense, someone who, who is careful about what they say and what they do, a notion of godliness via piety. Verse 13, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. What's your future home characterized by? It's right. It's righteous. It's only righteous. The place you're going and your future self is characterized by being only and fully what it should be before God. That's your future. Verse 14, be diligent to be found by him without spot, or blemish, without spot or blemish. The term for spot can mean a plateau or a hill, and it would be the thought that if I'm looking out over a landscape, a hill or a plateau sticks out. So if I was looking at my character and something stuck out, this would be a negative, by the way, in this sense. So if, I, if you dressed in white and you sat down to rib dinner and you weren't careful, you, your white whatever, would be spotty. It would not be without spot or blemish. It would, it would show what you've been up to. So if we're, if we're looking at our life as a garment, because I think that's a convenient image, 
is my white garment, is it white? Is it spotless or does it look like I sat down to that barbecue dinner and I used my clothing to wipe my fingers off after those lovely ribs? So without spot or blemish. So free of that. If, if I'm wearing white, it's all white. There's nothing else there. Verse 17, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. And this really goes back to his warning about the false teachers, that you're going to have people telling you, you, you can live this way. This isn't a problem. Peter says the error of lawless people. They're living as if God hasn't constrained their behavior. And Peter says, don't, don't buy it. Don't go with them. Like Johnny Erickson taught, we should have a holy desire to be as free of sin as possible here and now, knowing our future is to be righteous entirely. So this, this, this theme that Peter's closing with is to be like Christ, and that is to be without spot, that is to be godly, that is to, to have a character that's characterized by Christ's own qualities. So he says it this way, the upward call inc includes be holy, be godly, be righteous, be without moral spot or without moral blemish, refuse lawlessness as a lifestyle, but live according to the law of Christ. That's the call on Christians now. That's part of the transforming work of the Spirit. So God's call on our lives is nothing short of the perfection of Christ's own life. How are we doing at that? Let's let that question settle in for a minute too. How are we doing at, at uh, moral perfection? You know, uh, a guy, H.A. Um, Ironside was a guy loved as a new Christian, read his commentaries and re read his biography and super guy, a great guy. And uh, for part of his life, he was involved, uh, this is back in the day uh, with the Salvation Army uh, which had a holiness doctrine. And they taught, this is what they taught, this is what he believed at the moment, uh, that you could achieve sinless perfection on the earth while here. And, he, you know, he drove himself, literally, he drove himself to a nervous mental breakdown under the stress of thinking he could and should and would be able to achieve sinless perfection. Th that teaching doesn't get around much anymore. Because if you're real with yourself and with others, you basically know it doesn't happen. In fact, it's really anti-biblical too, isn't it? If we say that we have no sin, we're lying and we're sinning, 1 John says. So we get, we're, we're going to sin, guys. We do sin, we will sin. And our sins and our failures can overwhelm us. Uh, do you guys sometimes feel more like a failure instead of a conqueror. You remember Paul says in Romans 8, we're more than conquerors. I love that phrase. You know, in the big picture, it's true. You know, we're going to overcome sin. We're going to overcome death. We're with Christ. You know, nothing can separate us from Christ. That's a, that's a good day. That's a good future. But in the moment, if, if sin is more normal, if that's part of my experience, it's hard to feel victorious. And so that thought, that call to live holy sometimes can feel like a weight that we can't bear. We do need to remember in those moments, sanctification is a process. You know, many of us, if we came to faith uh, late teens uh, into our 20s or 30s or whatever, 
many of us would have a, a very a spotty life before that as far as righteousness is concerned for sure right and that's probably saying it mildly you know if you hear the stories of who God saves he he doesn't uh, he doesn't save what appear to be the brightest and the best sometimes he delights to save those like Paul who was far far away that's what he does but if we find ourselves in times where sin seems to be more the norm uh, we need to remind ourselves that, that sanctification, becoming like Christ, leaving sin behind, is a process. And friends, this is the deal. When God shows you a sin today, and you come to grips with that, and you learn about that, and you start putting away, you know what he's going to do tomorrow? He's going to show you another one in another area. And then the day after that, and the week after that, and the month after that, and that'll keep going on until the day we die. Because the closer we get to Christ, the more fully our eyes are attuned to right and wrong, the more fully we see sin in ourselves. And that can feel very discouraging. It's like you say, am I never getting any better? And at one level, no, you're not ever getting any better. The old sinful self keeps sinning. That's all it can do. And, and God's very kind and very gracious in not showing us more of our sin than we can handle and deal with in a moment. So the call is high and it's upward, and our own experience may leave us feeling depressed sometimes. This is a verse that I love, two verses out of Psalm 130. If you, Lord, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Lord, if any of us come up to you, to your measuring tape, and we stand in front of your measuring tape, who is left standing? And the implication is no one. He says this, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And that's a verse I take to the bank. If you, Lord, mark iniquity, who can stand? But with you there's forgiveness. There's real forgiveness. And one of the things Christians need to do, especially if you felt in a hole about I'm convicted of sin, if I've confessed my sin, I'm forgiven. My relationship with Christ is restored. My relationship is good. And one of the things I have to do is discipline my own mind to say, I've confessed my sin. I'm forgiven by the atoning blood of Christ. And I need to act like I'm forgiven and get back up and get in the race. If we carry around the accusation afterwards, we're in a sense, we're not only living defeatist life, but we're in a sense calling God a liar. God says you're forgiven. You can get up and go forward. And we're still laboring under the weight of the sin we confess. It doesn't work that way. So one of the things we need to be good at is, a, you know, to confess is to agree with God. So I confess, sin, Lord, I blew it. I blew it. This was my sin. This is what I did. I confess it. And when I've confessed and God now says, you're forgiven, then I need to say, and now I'm forgiven. I need to confess the truth about my sin, and I also need to confess the truth about my forgiveness. And that's what allows me to leave the weight or the burden of guilt behind and go forward. But it's confessing the truth on both sides of that. If we confess our sins, and we should, make sure that we're also confessing that we're forgiven in Christ so that we're free to go forward. One of the keys to living a more Christ-like life is to remember that this kind of change, of course, in lifestyle is predicated on a new set of affections. I want to talk about this just a little bit. 
you've probably heard this from me before. If you ask a person, why do we do the things we do? The answer, this is the biblical counselor's answer, why do we do the things we do? Because we want the things we want. If we would change what we do, what should we change? We should change what we want. Now, here's the thing. If you find yourself in a pattern of sin, so Peter's saying, guys, live up. The call is righteousness because that's where you're heading. Live godly, live Christ-like. Okay, I hear you, Peter. Okay, but what does that look like? And why am I not getting there? One of the reasons is my mind is unrenewed and I don't see the need for change. Guys, we had a, we had a guest. I don't know if he would have professed Christ in the moment or not. We had a guest in a Lion and Lamb service, this is years ago, who was using the F-bomb loud enough to be heard by everyone around him in his enthusiastic affirmation of what he was hearing. Oh, yeah. He was the real deal. And, you know, his friend talked to him later and said, hey, uh, just by the way, we, you know, to him, this wasn't a deal. You know, he, he needed, it was not a deal. He needed someone to say, oh, by the way, maybe let's, let's talk a little quieter and let's, let's not say quite that here in, in the service. Because he didn't know. You know, sometimes we sin because we don't know. We think we're doing fine until God's word or a Christian brother or sister comes up and says, hey, by the way, FYI, this is an issue. And we should, we should do something that we're not doing or we shouldn't do something that we are doing. So is my mind renewed? That's one thing. And guys, that's one of the reasons why we, you can fill in the blank here. This is a trick question. That's why we read our Bible. Because when we read our Bible, we're renewing our mind. We're filling our mind with what's true instead of what we came with, which is not true. It's darkness, not light. So we got to renew the gray cells, what's going on between our ears. We have to read scripture. We have to infuse ourselves with God's truth because that redirects us. That's one thing. Another thing is this. The pleasure of sin, whatever the payoff is, still seems desirable. I might say, I know, I know this is wrong. And I'm going to do it anyway. Why do I do that? I know it's wrong. Okay, so it's not information. It's that I want the payoff, whatever that payoff is. You know, Moses speaks in Hebrews about the passing pleasure of sin. Guys, lots of sin. There's a pleasure. It's momentary. It's destructive. But there is a pleasure. You know, if I overeat and I'm lamenting it later, oh, you know, my stomach, I ate too much. Like last night. That's my confession for the day. Like last night. I ate too much. I don't feel good. I don't want to overeat. You know, I tell myself, okay, next time, I'm going to eat like Mark. I'm going to put this little chicken portion on my plate. And that's all I'm going to eat. I'm going to be careful. I'm not going to feel bad. Uh, so I tell myself, oh, there was a pleasure, right? Because the food tasted great. And so I ate more and I ate more. But then I feel it's like, man, I don't like that. Well, sin always has a dynamic like that. So there's a pleasure, and I say, hey, I'm going to do it. I know it's not right, but I'm going to get this pleasure. But what you find over time is this. The sin delivers less and less pleasure, and the guilt, and really the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings, it increases. Um, I've told you guys, as a new Christian, uh, I got angry all the time. And... Uh, I didn't think I was that bad. 
but I knew I got angry a lot. And I was reading Galatians 5, and I read that a deed of the flesh is outbursts of anger. And when I read that, it was just like the light switch went on, and I knew that's me. That's what I do. And God says, this is a work of the flesh. This is sin, that I can't justify my angry responses to life. It was a revelation. And, and I will tell you this. Um, so I did a Bible study. And I looked up every instance of anger to see what scripture said about being angry. And I found out that with, basically, if it's the anger of man, and scripture talks about it with, with two qualified exceptions, it's always negative. Proverbs is full of don't hang out with an angry man. If you deliver an angry man, you'll just have to do it again. And as I read that, my mind was renewed. This is not a good thing. I'm convicted by the truth, by knowledge of what God says about anger. And I realize, and and I don't like the after effect. And, and I'll tell you, too, uh, this is something that God has held my toes to the fire on. And, you know, there's a pleasure. Have you guys ever felt this? You know, you're in an argument or you're with a, somebody on the telephone, you, you know, and you speak just in anger. Do you not find sometimes there's a little pleasure in that? I'm angry and I'm right and you're wrong and this is the way it is, this is the way it should be. There's this little emotional, oh, that felt good. And uh, when I do that, I, the Lord just hammers me. I'll tell you, I feel so bad. I feel so grieved by the Spirit when I've done that. And I did it twice about a month ago on these phone calls with people that should have been listening to me, and doing what I asked, and giving me my way. And I just felt, and I, I knew, Lord, okay, I've learned this lesson, and here I am doing it again. And the Lord's not cutting me slack. I just felt terrible. So... So if we find we need to renew our minds so we know what God wants and doesn't want, that's the truth of God's word. But we also want to change our passions, our desires. If we'll change what we want, we'll change what we do. And so part of that is also from Scripture, and part of that is the school of hard knocks. Guys, if we keep sinning in a given area, the conviction of the Spirit, and this can go a couple of different ways, we can harden ourselves. We can dull our conscience, and, and that's not a good thing because we're just, this, sin always brings death, so we want a sensitive conscience, and we want to listen to the Spirit. When the Spirit is grieved or quenched, we want to be sensitive to that. We want to take our cues from the Lord. Let me read part of Ephesians 4. Are we doing on time? Uh, Ephesians 4 to talk about what this looks like. This concept of transformation into Christ's image, it's a major, major theme in the New Testament. And guys, I say this regularly, but I think it's necessary. We don't want to be religious. We don't want to follow rules. We don't want to be posers on the outside and be something and someone entirely else on the inside. We want to change because we're changing. We want to look like Christ because we look like Christ. We want the reality of that. And this is one of the things that you see. I don't think these are on your study sheet, but Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, Romans 6 through 8, Galatians 5, all talk about this same thing, this same dynamic to bring about spiritual change. This is it from Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, and I'm going to just hop, skip, and jump through here. Don't walk, don't live like the Gentiles. Their minds are in futility, darkened, alienated, ignorant, hard, they're callous, they're greedy, 
to practice all impurity. That's not the way you learn Christ. He says that has nothing to do with Christ. He says, uh, assuming that you have heard about him, this is what you're called to do, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Friends, the, the, the life that you bring to the Christian faith is corrupt with deceitful desires. In fact, if you read in Romans 8, the person that you are or were before Christ can never do anything to please God. Romans 8. Your sinful self can't do one thing. You can't have a thought. You can't have a motive. You can't have a word. You can't have an action that pleases God because your whole life is rebellion against God, no matter how you couch it. If we don't live subject to God, everything we do is rebellion. In fact, you see that in Proverbs. Everything, because we're telling God how things are and how we'll live according to our own mandates. So he says, put off your old self. That's all it is. That's all it's got. That's all it can do. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Change what you think up here. Get a new calibration for truth and value, what God values, what God's saying to us. And then put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you think, so if I sat down at that lovely barbecue meal and I used my white shirt or jacket to, to rub all the grease on and I looked at that, it would be filthy. And it'd be greasy. And this is like I take that shirt or jacket off and I put a new clean one on. I'm taking something off intentionally. I'm saying no to that. I'm putting something else on intentionally. I'm saying yes to that. And that's the thought here. We have, you know, Galatians 5 says, your life, if you're a Christian, you're always in a dogfight. And it's internal. And it's your old self and it's your new self. And that's what Galatians 5 says. And that's what Romans 7 says. There's this internal conflict. Which one is going to win, the new me or the old me? And that's where we're renewing our minds with the truth so that we change the affections of our hearts, so that we change what we want. That makes us put on the new self and we walk after that new nature. As long as we're in this body, sin is present with us. Johnny Erickson Tata wanted to get rid of the body because when I get rid of the body, I get rid of the sin and the impulse to sin. And when I get my resurrection body, it's everything it should be. Privately, guys, we have to work at this. We have to work at this transformation. In the Sunday school, we were talking about abiding in Christ, John 15, the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. But you still have to, the work is to abide or it's to walk by the Spirit. Privately, day by day, I need to be meeting with the Lord in Scripture and prayer. And you'll see where this winds down. I'll try not to abuse my time. You'll see where this winds down, the last verse in this book. I need to meet with the Lord in Scripture. I need to take in the truth, and I need to talk to God. That's fellowship. That's me being in God's presence in the ways he's allowed me to and enabled me to here and now. I can listen to praise and worship music. But you see, the thought is, in my world, in my private world, I'm doing what I can to be in relationship with God, to be taking my cues from him. And then also, corporately, um, we're going to change the way we begin and end services, I think, next month, just in a couple of weeks. And one of the things that we'll do in that is be more intentional about when we come together, uh, confessing sins and making sure that our hearts are right before the Lord so we can hear from the Lord, so that we can praise him freely. 
Don't you find that a worship service is a great time to confess your sin? Because when I'm drawing near to God, if there's something between the Lord and me, I'm feeling it emotionally. It's, it's on my mind. And so I'm confessing that in the moment. That's a great thing. I'm also, though, I'm being encouraged by the truth of Scripture. I'm being encouraged by the fellowship I have with other Christians who are doing the same things I do. We're all going through the same warfare, the same battles of life, you know, privately, Christ-like transformation, just the challenges of living on this earth in this day and time. But I'm doing it with other people, and I'm encouraged by that as well. So privately, by ourselves at home, we abide, we work at abiding by getting together with the Lord. And then we do the same thing corporately when we come together as the church. It all affirms that upward direction, that upward view, and that upward call of being more like Christ. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, um, we talked about this again. Sorry for repetition if you were here in Sunday school class. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 talk about the fact that, that members of the body are meant to build each other up. And Ephesians 4 talks about uh, saints building up the body of Christ until we all attain unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That we're meant to bless and encourage and build each other up in this process until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Guys, that, that doesn't happen here and now, does it? Which means one of our life's work is to encourage and challenge other believers in this transforming process God's got us in. That's part of the work of every person in the church. Peter returns, the last verse here, verse 18, he returns right where he started at the beginning of chapter 1. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter said, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You and I have everything we need to live life well and godly like Christ. We have everything we need through... This is, this is how we're equipped to do this, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. How do you and I live, transform Christ-like lives? It's through knowing him. So when we talk about transformation, this is it at the end of the day. It's really who are you hanging out with? Because who you're hanging out with determines who you're becoming. 1 Corinthians 15.33 is a negative, it's a pejorative. Bad company corrupts good morals. The opposite is also true. Good company raises you up. That's the thought. Uh, verse 18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Guys, if you're hanging out with Jesus, you'll become like Jesus. So we don't read the Bible to get facts or to impress our friends or neighbors. They won't be impressed anyway. We come to the Bible primarily to hang out with Christ. And the more fully we see him and know him, the more like him we become. Again, it can't be otherwise. We're becoming like those who influence us. So when we say read our Bible and pray or join in the corporate meetings of the church, it is the distinct ways God gives us to hang out with him. And it's in that process, 2 Corinthians, I think it's 3, talks about we're being transformed uh, one degree of glory to another as we behold Christ. We see him and we become like him because we're taking our cues from him. So at the end of the day, this issue of Christ-like transformation 
really gets down to who are we seeing? Who do we know? Because Peter has said it's through the knowledge of him that called us that godliness, the godly transformation occurs in your life and mine. So if I'm seeing Christ routinely, I'm becoming like him and I can't do otherwise. But if I'm hanging out on my own, if I'm not renewing my mind and my affections, if I'm not intentionally hanging out with other believers who are doing the same thing, whatever the influences are that are key and regular and routine in my life, they are the ones that I'm being formed by. So if I look at my life and I see those areas that aren't what they should be, I need to spend more time with Christ. I need to take more of the truth of Christ's word into my mind and my heart so that that transformation is something that I'm willingly, conscientiously part of. So this is a big deal. Um, guys, sinning Christians, they're unhappy Christians. Uh, John Nelson Darby said, the most miserable person on the earth is not the unsaved. It's the saved who lives like the unsaved. Because you've got the Holy Spirit. And you got the promises of God, and you're living like you don't. So this Peter ends all of this down on transformation into Christ's image through the knowledge of him. And he gives us the mechanisms, the manners in which we can do that. Religion will make you a legalist. Christ will make you holy. Holy is utterly desirable. Rules will constrain outward behaviors. Christ will liberate us from the inside out. Every pursuit for significance, and I would add pleasure, is chasing shadows unless the pursuit is ultimately Christ. And the question is always this, do we know Christ for salvation? Don't worry about growing in godliness if you don't have Christ as Savior. Call in the name of the Lord and God will save you. Your sins will be forgiven and you'll be a child of God. You'll be sealed forever. And call on Christ for sanctification. Lord, I'm not what I should be. I see it. I own it. I confess it. Help me. Give me the truth of your word. Give me the encouragement of other believers. Help me to become more fully in you all that you want me to be. Let me pray. and we'll, Actually, I'll have you stand up now if you would, and the worship team can come up. Let me pray. To, to uh, Take your study sheet home. There's some questions for uh, thought maybe later today or this week. Lord, thanks that you deign to join us in our humanity to die for our sins, to rise from the dead so that you could redeem uh, rebels, Lord, rebels to your name and to your cause and make us like Christ. Thanks, Lord, that our future with you is eternal and glorious. It's full of joy and pleasure forever. And we want to live today, Lord, like those who know you and know that we're headed for heaven and live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's close by reading, what's the text? What do we got there? Oh, wow. Okay. That's last week's, but we'll read it anyway. <laughs> That's a good one. It's worth repeating. <laughs> I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive sins in a place among those.